Hello, and welcome to Making the Museum. I'm Jonathan Alger, and this is a project of CNG Partners Design for Culture. Today, I'm joined by Neil Redding. Neil, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jonathan. Great to be here. So to get started, for those who don't know you, could you tell our dear listener who you are and what you do? Sure thing. So I am a near futurist. And what that means is that I am focused on technology primarily, but also many kinds of emerging possibility and work with clients and businesses and brands to connect that possibility with immediate practicality for their brands or businesses. So connecting the possible with the practical is what near futurism really is about. And in terms of everything else that I do and have done, I've got a 30-year career that grew up building software, um, doing software engineering, software development. And then really the second half of it, I've been doing more creative tech and experience design in the context of physical spaces, simulated spaces, and then really this convergence of digital and physical more and more over the past over the past decade, really. So, so that's a bit of flavor behind the title Near Futurist. Awesome. We're going we're gonna to be getting into that, I think, in just a little bit in, in more detail. I do have a favorite side question that I ask everybody, and that is, how did you get started? How did you start that arc of story that eventually got you into this business and where you are now? Let's see how far back do we want to go. My mom and dad met in uh, at <laughs> Wherever a single the smoking group gun in is, Washington, D.C. Oh, really? Um, oh, tell me more. <laughs> I guess where I would date the, the origin of, I don't know about near futurism, and I've been using that term for maybe four and a half years, but uh-huh. uh, I like starting, I think, with, I studied computer science and philosophy in college. I actually got in on a little music scholarship as a pianist, so I... I played piano, did piano lessons my whole childhood. And then I very quickly found that I didn't like the piano program at the school I was going to, and then, but really fell in love with computer science and philosophy. And those were both in entirely different departments, sciences and humanities. And at the time, this was a while ago, the heads of the departments were like, these are in two entirely different departments. What are you doing? And I said, I, I really, I'm drawn to both. I didn't want to choose. And I've discovered so much intersection and overlap between these two disciplines, computer science and philosophy. Um, and they, in terms of curriculum, they intersect and overlap in terms of logic and language, theory of language, linguistics, natural languages. One, one semester, actually, I had all the courses I had uh, Noam Chomsky writing and work as, a, as part of the curriculum. So famous linguist, for anyone who doesn't know him, made some really seminal contributions. But Language is a, has been a through line for me, both as a programmer using programming languages and also more recently as a writer and speaker and someone who I think like you, Jonathan, really cares a lot about language and what it can do in the world. But to connect that with more recent experience in my career, I started doing software engineering right out of college and I looked at graduate programs in philosophy and thought, let's see what I could do with software. And I very quickly... And I was able to hang out with really smart people that were really stimulating. I got paid really well, and I was like, "This is great. I'm just gonna just gonna do software." And so, ten or fifteen years later, I realized like I'd just been writing software for a lot of different kinds of companies, from Apple and Oracle through to like tech startups in the '90s, and actually got started doing a bit of VR, like VRML for the web, which is an early attempt at doing. 3D in a web browser in the 90s, which was pretty crazy in retrospect. We were very ambitious and delirious, you know, on money and rave culture and all of that at the time. But so there's a lot we could talk about here, but I think there's these are the seeds for me that I see, especially in retrospect, that led to this ongoing interest in the convergence or the overlap or the, the you might even say the conversation to be a little poetic between different domains or lenses for understanding the world, right? The physical, the digital, the human, the natural, and all of this. And that's eventually what led me to to run the first digital experience design team at Gensler. And I think that's really, that started in 2015. And that's really what got me, I think, into the world of 
SEGD and experience design in the built environment, which is where I think you and I overlap the most. I like the idea of intersection of curriculums or intersection of fields of study. There are a lot of people who have been on the show, a lot of people who listen to the show who are in that same boat. A lot of what you said is things I like to follow up on. So let's do that by actually getting into our show. Today's episode is The Near Future of Experience Design with Neil Redding. And as always, I know the list of our talking points, but not much more. And my guest has the rest. Without further ado, here we go with our first point. Number one, what is near futurism? You announced yourself as a near futurist. I personally think that's the coolest thing ever, but our listeners don't know, their world has not yet been rocked. Let's rock their world with this. What is near futurism? Uh, Wow, that's a high bar to hurdle, so hopefully we will rock their worlds. So I hinted at it earlier, right? So near futurism I describe as, in practice, connecting emerging possibility with practicality for brands and businesses right now. So that's a very brief phrase. Uh, it has the word futurism in it and the word near, which we'll come back to in a second, but futurism broadly and near futurism is really a kind of a response to people calling me a futurist starting maybe 10 years ago or so, because I've just been really passionate about emerging technology and new possibility that's enabled by new technology. And what I realized is that some number of years ago, maybe five years ago, that that's great. I appreciate you calling me a futurist or or noticing that I'm looking ahead at what's emerging. But it never sat right with me, really, this title of futurist. I think because I have huge respect for the practice of futurists that do foresight, that do prediction, that extrapolate out from what's happening today much further than the work that I do. You know, I mean, I'm a technologist by trade, as I've described, and so I'm fundamentally biased towards building things, what can be done today. And so I use the the output of foresight and uh, prediction work and sort of future modeling, which is getting very sophisticated lately with data being fed into machine learning models and that kind of prediction. But near futurism is really about what's emerging now that can be put into practice now. And yeah, like you and hopefully like your listeners, a lot of people have been describing an excitement or responding with excitement to me about this idea of near futurism, which I've been leaning into more since last fall. And yeah, I think it's, I think it's got legs. There's a lot of realization that the future is coming at us so fast now, like a fire hose every day. And unlike before the pandemic, where I would describe the near future as the next three to five years, you know, there was a little sense of maybe there's enough stability or we can expect enough stability over the next three to five years. That would be a good time frame to, to engage with. And we talk about how brands and businesses should be looking at emerging technology and what's what it can do. But certainly during the pandemic, the near future started to feel like weeks. Who knows like what's going to happen beyond that? And then as we emerged from the pandemic, then we had this past year, right, of a fire hose of AI-driven innovation, right? And the chat GPT and Midjourney and Dolly and like all those applications and technologies, I think have really clarified for people that things are arriving so quickly that foresight is no longer enough, right? Just seeing something coming, if it's coming at us so quickly, by the time we see it, it's already here, basically, right? To use that sort of speed of approaching something or other analogy. And so near futurism, I just to summarize, is about what can we do today? What can we do with these new technologies? How do we filter out the noise and look at what technologies are actually most relevant today and in the coming, I don't know, six months to two years, that kind of time frame. I think a lot of people listening to the show will be very interested in that. Uh, you also, just to be specific about the time frame, I don't know if this still holds true, but shortly after we met at the SCGD X Lab event a couple of months ago, in one of our conversations, you said that your time frame is this fiscal year. In other words, if you're working with a company or an organization, it's really saying these 
technologies that are now coming at us so quickly, you need advice to figure out how to adapt or learn from them or position yourself or defend yourself against them or whatever is appropriate for your area of endeavor right now. And you need to figure out what to spend right now in order to do that. Does that still hold true? Is this year or this fiscal year is your time frame? When you say near, what does near mean? Yeah. So this fiscal year, I think, is a great shorthand speaking to leaders at businesses who make decisions about budgeting and priorities. I think that the fiscal year is shorthand for what have you already prioritized for this year? Things are moving so quickly that the way businesses have traditionally done budgeting on an annual basis is, I think, insufficient. Honestly, there's so much happening at such a rapid rate that even just in the realm of AI and large language models, or even within that, just what's coming out of open AI, things are moving quickly enough that six months ago, if your fiscal year was, I don't know, June to June or even September to September, you might not have anticipated the ability to very specifically build your own GPT, right? Which is like an app running on OpenAI's platform that can be made available in an equivalent of the App Store hosted by OpenAI. This may seem like it's certainly not as mainstream yet as, say, Apple's or Google's Android App Stores or Play Store, but it's getting there. And at least as granular as the current fiscal year. A lot of the folks who listen to this show are in the experience design business, one way or the other. They're creating experiences, as you put it, that are in the physical world. You said that earlier, and that's also a uh, realm you come out of, having worked at first iteration of the experience design department at Gensler, which is, for listeners, if you don't know, the largest, I believe, architecture firm in the world at the moment. So because you have experience in experience, maybe you could share a bit of how you have and how you do apply the things that you're learning from near futurism to that realm specifically. I know in the conference, you were sharing some really interesting applications, for example, of AR to retail, but that's just the tip of the iceberg, I'm sure. Sure. Yeah. So going back to my time at Gensler starting in 2015, during the time I was there was the emergence of using platforms like Unity to take 3D models that are part of the design process for a space and start to make them dynamic, start to create virtual walkthroughs from them. When I started at Gensler in 2015, it was still this era of even creating full renderings during the design process of here's the current state of a design of a space was something that was outsourced, sent out to a rendering company, right? And during that those couple of years, rendering went from something that we yeah, was outsourced and not a core part of the design process to something that you could do in-house with software and including platforms like Unity. And not just render as a static piece of output, a design artifact, but also put the client mid-design process in a simulation of that design inside a headset, an early Oculus Rift is what we had at the time. And then they can look around in a virtual reality, a VR kind of experience of that design. So that was one example going back there. And so that that's that wasn't a, a deliverable to visitors to a space, but it was part of the design process, which was really valuable, connecting design of 3D spaces with the ultimate creation of physical 3D spaces. Another thing that we did was we worked with beacons, which were a way to connect specific locations with aspects of digital functionality that you could access as a visitor to a space on a phone. And that kind of location-specific experience for visitors to a space is now, I think, just de rigueur, right? It's expected. If you're at a museum, museums these days provide the ability, instead of just taking a big piece of hardware for an audio tour off the shelf, right? There's an app that can notice where you are, what artwork or what display, what physical moment you're experiencing in the museum, and then provide that audio layer uh, quite easily. 
these days, right? And then not just an audio layer, but it could also be an augmented reality layer or just some, any kind of additional digital information that's relevant to that physical context. So I'll connect that digital information for physical context with the piece you're asking about with augmented reality and retail. So like this past year, I spent most of 2023 working with a spatial computing tech startup. Alki Labs, this company, was building a spatial computing platform. And what it is able to do is by placing only QR codes in a space in a, in a permanent way, like on the floor or on the walls, use those as anchor points for an invisible 3D coordinate system. And then that makes possible just placing precisely located digital content or digital objects in that invisible coordinate system. So you can just imagine like beacons used to be able to do, but much higher fidelity. You walk around a store and you could see a digital layer. Say you're looking at products on a shelf. You could see information about each of those products. You could see coupon or discount detail. You could see the ability to navigate from where you are to where the items on your shopping list are in augmented reality. If you're a store associate, you could see guidance to where this pallet of Oatly or this new product that you've got back of house needs to be restocked, even if you're if it's your first day and you don't know where that product should go on the shelf. You know, So all of these are examples of digital information that has physical context and the huge value we're finding of being able to place that digital information in the physical context that it's about. So rather than just saying, go restock this on aisle A5, where is that? There's a lot of miscommunication about physical location, but being able to have a device that is capable of spatial computing, like understanding the physical world, which phones are, high-end phones especially, that makes it possible to have that digital information be much, much less error-prone, the communication be much more accurate when there's when the digital information is in that physical context. That's a range of examples. We can go deeper into any of them. We're going to get to a phrase that you learned. You just said that listeners are now learning, which is spatial computing. We'll get to that in just a minute. Also, augmented reality, virtual reality. But first, I want to get to point number three here in our talking points, which is this question, which kind of comes before that in the simplest terms. Number three, are physical and digital converging? From what you just said, I think the answer is probably going to be yes. But we also have a term I want to bounce off of you that you have said that you hate. And I'd, I'd love to hear more about that because there's nothing like a, a little bit of debate on a podcast to keep things going. The term fidgetal, that's physical and digital being combined. It's a portmanteau or a neologism of those two words, phys and digital. Works better than the other way around, Dig digital. But fidgetal, is everything becoming, are physical and digital converging? Is everything becoming fidgetal? And how do you feel about that word? It's funny because I, people who know me know that I'm a bit of a connoisseur of portmanteaus and word plays. I love them. I grew up with a master punster. My dad just was like the ultimate dad joke dad. And um, he just loved puns. So I, I trace it to that a little bit. But as I mentioned earlier, I just love language. But there's something, it's very curious to me because the word fidgetal, I think I should love it. I should appreciate it because as you said, it's better than digital. That's, it's not the worst mouthfeel of a word, digital, but it's not clear that it means digital and physical, right? It's like the physical word. The word physical just gets subsumed by the digital part of the portmanteau. So in fidgetal, it's like both words are evident in that portmanteau, but it just makes me fidgety. And I, I say that because it rhymes with words. It doesn't rhyme with fidgetal, but what's the word? It's not alliterative. It's out. It's, it's consonant. It's assonant. It's something. Yeah, like, where's the linguist? We need proper linguist in the room. But I just I, I would think, say part, a part of it sounds like part of that other thing. I'm yeah, like, exactly. They sound like each other in some way. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It's at least I'm not alone though. There are plenty of people who have done work at this intersection of digital and physical who also get fidgety when the word fidgetal is uh, mentioned. I prefer digital physical conversions or just convergence or something, which is, it has its drawbacks. But to answer your question, moving beyond the term, 
I think so. I think, yes, digital and physical are coming together. I mean, look, uh, you know, if we consider some people talk about the use of smartphones and the fact that for most people, first of all, almost everybody has a smartphone, right? It's practically a hundred percent in the West, especially, and certainly in Asia. And people have talked about smartphones as the first beachhead in our evolution into cyborgs, right? Because we've practically got these things. They may as well be on our bodies or connected to our bodies. Like so much of what we do is intertwined with what's happening on the phone, but it's a digital thing. And so we could also say that smartphone ubiquity is evidence of digital and physical coming together. But I think in the more narrow and probably relevant sense to this conversation or this prompt, digital information showing up with physical location and physical context in the world, I think is really the next step, right? Because to say that digital and physical are converging as evidenced by the smartphone, I mean, the smartphone, it all happens in this black slab in our hands, right? It's not and augmented reality on a smartphone is the first step towards digital content being layered onto or appearing to be in physical context. And certainly, you know, I'll segue into another topic, the Apple Vision Pro headset, which is going to having open for pre-order, I think we could go today, is going to start arriving in people's hands who pre-ordered on the 2nd of February. So expect your feeds to to include a lot more excited first early adopter footage of people using their Vision Pros at home. But if you look at any of the material that Apple's been producing from the launch last, or the announcement last June to the launch material recently, you can see that one next step here is the experience of when you're using the Vision Pro headset which they don't call a headset, but it's a spatial computer, right? We'll get back to that term as well. But when you're using that, when it's on your face, the apps and the content that you experience has physical dimensionality and even location in the space that you're physically sitting in, right? Some of that is not the deepest integration of digital with the physical environment in the sense that you're on your couch, say, and you're seeing, you're looking at a, Apple likes to say, 100 foot wide screen where you can watch movies that appear to be that enormous, right? So it's like you're in a large theater, an IMAX theater, but it's a two dimensional screen and you're sitting on your couch and it's not like you're moving around the room or doing anything like it's not a 3D movie necessarily. But it's a stepping stone towards content and objects showing up in the physical, in your physical environment. And there, we're going to see over this year a lot more apps, including many developed by friends of mine, who that where the apps have 3D objects that are digitally, you know, physically located in the space around you. And you can experience those on both Apple's Vision Pro as well as Meta's Quest headsets and, and various others. So, that's a long answer to is digital or digital and physical converging. I would say I'm confident they are for a number of trajectories, right? There are these things happening on our phones, like I described with Alki Labs and, and retail and just augmented reality. Almost everybody has seen because it's been around on phones for over 10 years, right? In, in terms of brand activations and even in physical spaces, right? Often, including in museums, right? Augmented reality layers on on displays or works of art. Uh, and it's also now, I think, thanks to Apple's push, some subset of the work that we do and the content that we consume and the entertainment that we engage with is going to be in this immersive, converged digital physical mode. Yeah. I think the way, the way not to dredge up a, a word that makes you fidget, but we have said to clients for some time now that the projects that we do are fidgetal forevermore. In other words, the boundary or the event horizon that defines projects that could be only one or the other is behind us. And whether the we're going to create a physical experience that will be documented in Instagram and selfies and take over social media, and it'll have that dimension in the digital realm, even if we do not incorporate digital into the original project or at the other end of the spectrum, 
It's an immersive experience where you're underwater like a whale projected all around you. And we have that in both the physical environment and also a version for Apple Vision Pro or MetaQuest, which is super fidgetal. Either way, it's fidgetal forevermore. And every project is now fidgetal. It's just a question of how much fizz and how much digital. I'm not going to torture you with that word anymore. <laughs> By the know, way, the I'm a referee it, like... in that debate. I have had guests who have who are who would like to tattoo that somewhere on their body, and I've had guests who would like to eject that from somewhere on their body. And I am I am unbiased, but I, I would like to get to point number four because you said it a couple times, and I want to make sure that we define that. A lot of folks think that AR and VR and all the other R's are sort of different things, but in your world, they all gather up under one banner called spatial computing. Many people think of AR and VR as their own category, but spatial computing is a word that wraps them all up. So number four, what is spatial computing? Spatial computing is a term that actually goes back to at least the 90s. There's been those of us who have been working in varying degrees in this space, so to speak, with this technology debate, whether it might even go back to the 60s, depends on how you count it. But simply put, spatial computing is about giving computers, broadly, the ability to understand the physical environment around them, where they are relative to the spaces that physically include them. And so it's a broad concept. All of the R's, as you mentioned, VR, AR, MR, XR, which is actually just a, like, X is just like a variable in that case, right? It's just a, a substitute for the A or the V or the M. All, they all have nuanced differences. Uh, spatial computing, I think, is the word that you're we're going to hear this year because Apple says so. Because Tim Cook, actually last June, and they're, they're sticking with this as a positioning stance, Tim Cook said last June, we're announcing the beginning of the third major era of computing. The first was personal computing. Of course, there was a lot of computing before personal computing, but, and of course, Apple here is taking credit for introduction of, of these eras, which is audacious, but typical. So personal computing introduced by the Macintosh in the eighties, mobile computing introduced by the iPhone in 2007. And now we have spatial computing introduced by the Vision Pro. The actual experience of putting it on your face and seeing content and interacting with it is very similar to augmented reality or mixed reality. And I applaud actually Apple's decision to use spatial computing because the parlance, the language and the acronym soup uh, of AR and MR and XR and VR has been very confusing and I think um, even a matter of ongoing debate among practitioners, never mind the mainstream press and media and just people who are curious, but is this relevant? It's just a very confusing set of terms. One other thing I'll say, hopefully this doesn't muddy the waters, but spatial computing is actually a bigger category of capability than just presenting humans with visual content that appears to be in your environment. So spatial computing, for example, is used by autonomous vehicles like Tesla's or anything else, really any recently built car, right? Because there are sensors all around and those sensors reverse engineer, like they derive a, a 3D model of the world that they're moving through. Certainly anything autonomous, any robot, any flying drone, any kind of autonomous vehicle, all these devices are doing spatial computing because they have to move safely and effectively through the physical environment. So they need to detect it, map it, understand where they are relative to the physical environment. So spatial computing is a much broader world. And I think Apple, I'll leave with this, I think they're setting themselves up for not just face-worn devices like the Vision Pro within the era of spatial computing, but also new categories of device like a car or maybe even other kinds of autonomous things that apple might build i, so, I love the idea i love the idea of referring to a car as a device 
I also love the the idea that Apple, by declaring those three eras, saying that personal computing was era one, like all of the mainframe computers and how we got people to the moon. Forget that was like, that That wasn't computing. So was, much happened before the 80s, especially, as I said at the beginning, I'm a computer, I study computer science. Computer science goes back actually to the 19th century even, where there were like mechanical computers that were that people were inventing. Right. Difference engines. Yes. Yeah. So the idea of com- computation by machine is quite old. Let me do a quick halftime show, a station identification. If you are just joining, you're listening to Making the Museum. I'm Jonathan Alger, and this is a project of CNG Partners designed for culture. If you find this show valuable, please help spread the word. It's easy, fast, and free to do that. You can rate the show in Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and thank you to everyone who has made this a five-star podcast on both. You can also write a review in Apple Podcasts, or you can just tell a friend to check out makingthemuseum.com for everything about this podcast and the newsletter of the same name. Now, back to the show. Today, we are talking with Neil Redding about the near future of experience design. We just talked about number four. Next up, we have number five, and that is the near future of augmented reality. So we've talked about spatial computing. You've defined AR a little bit. I think that's very useful. I find it confusing myself. Maybe we can delve into a little bit of what is the near future for AR. Specifically, we talked about the Vision Pro. That is the very near future. What about the rest of it? Where do we see AR going? And is there a way that we can see the tea leaves about AR as it relates to experience design, the creation of experiences in physical places? Yeah, so it makes sense, I think, to think about augmented reality. Again, just to recap, you know, AR is the location and visual experience primarily, also audio, but audio-visual experience of digital content and objects that have physical location in the world, right? That's AR generally augmented reality, augmenting your reality with digital things. AR can be engaged or experienced on multiple kinds of devices, right? Broadly, uh, there are smartphones on any recent high-end phone, really depending on the quality of the camera, as well as high-end iPhones and a handful of Android phones have LiDAR sensors, which is like radar, but using laser light to engage very precisely with the physical environment, to, to understand very precisely where a device is. Those technologies make it possible for phones to do high quality augmented reality. And so I would distinguish that from, as you said, the Vision Pro and other headsets also do AR or Meta calls it mixed reality. Microsoft also calls it mixed reality. It's basically the same. It's digital objects in your physical space. But so yeah, the near future of AR is going to be a little bit different for these two categories of device. One you wear on your face, one you hold in your hand as a smartphone. So I'll take the smartphone first. I was starting to talk earlier about the ability to, in a retail context or store associates to have guidance about what goes where in terms of restocking products, in terms of e-commerce order picking, for example, like knowing products have locations on shelves and planograms guide to the setup of a shelf or a merchandising of a shelf. All of this is about connecting a lot of digital content with physical location. For shoppers in a store, being able to be guided to what's on your shopping list, seeing information digitally that can be updated digitally via a content management system that makes it much easier for a shopper using a phone to just point it at a shelf and see what are the discounts today what could I make with these products? If I'm making a spaghetti bolognese, like which products should I get for that recipe? There's lots of different ways augmented reality, meaning presenting digital layers on the physical store, can be valuable in that kind of context. I also mentioned navigation or alluded to it, right? Getting from where you are to where you want to be, whether it's a product on a shelf, whether it's a store within a mall, whether it's finding your way through a culture, cultural district in a downtown, which is a category of project that I imagine 
you and your firm and many other firms like are engaging with now. And certainly in the US, there's a lot of cities that are master planning out these sort of revitalization projects for downtown that include cultural districts, performance spaces, restaurants, things like this. All of these benefit from being able to meet people where they are, where their attention already is on their phones. And this is, by the way, tying it back to your all projects are digital forevermore now. Even if you don't build anything digital into your project, people are still largely paying attention to their phones, right? So you might say the project is digital, even if the digital part isn't something you provided, right? They're going to be paying attention to something digital. It may as well be coherent part of your, of the experience you design, right? Rather than a separate thing. Anyway, so augmented reality I think is going to help us navigate, help us find what we're looking for in the physical world in a bunch of different ways. We're going to see even just built into Android and iOS on our phones, more detail in their maps applications, more ability to do instant translation, language translation. You could call this augmented reality. Like there's a, it's incredible traveling internationally with signage that you don't recognize or can't read because you're not fluent to that language. Just being able to point your phone and, and have that immediately translated um, into a language you can read. This will be much more valuable, I think, when we've just got glasses that are all day wearable and you can just look around the world and see signage in a language that you can understand. So those are some examples of where AR on a phone is headed near term. And they're really just enhancements or elaborations, you might say, of the experience that we already have in a physical space. The way I like to think about it as a as you mentioned, kind of experienced designer with a technologist kind of foundation is what are people trying to do in this physical location, in this physical moment? Like what is that, what is their intention and how can that be enhanced, augmented with some digital content, some digital layers, digital functionality, right? So it's about meeting people where they are and being able to enhance it with this kind of tech. So that's how I look at AR on, on phones for now. Headsets like Meta's Quest and Apple's Vision Pro are not things that we walk around the world wearing. At best, you might walk around your home a little bit, but they're really not even designed for walking around in your home. When you think about AR on a Apple Vision Pro or a Meta Quest headset, it's not going to help you out in the world because you're not wearing it out in the world. That's coming. But so the near future of AR, we could call it on these headsets, is. And Apple's shown this in their marketing materials, the ability to experience not just content, entertainment content, videos, movies, et cetera, TV shows in very large virtual screens um, from your couch. This is for very wealthy people, right? Because what every, each person in the family is going to have a $3,500 headset, right? It's, <laughs> it's, it's going to be a while. Right. A year from now, I think they'll be cheaper, like the regular Vision, not the Vision Pro and so on. But but you can do collaborative work with these headsets. You can, you can have people physic- physically in one room and physically in another room and then in a shared virtual space where you can collaborate on 3D objects that you're designing together. And this is something that's been possible for, for quite a while, but the Apple Vision Pro is going to make that much higher fidelity and easier to use. And leverage a lot of the tools that designers are familiar with if they mac os uh, machines and and there's going to be a lot of high fidelity facetiming and just video conferencing that happens including moving into a more 3d mode apple's made a lot of to do i would say around what they call spatial video which i don't know if you've seen this but it, it is a capability that so on their recent, most recent iPhone 15 Pro and Pro Max that has these phones have the capability of capturing video in this mode they call spatial video. It's kind of 3D. And then that can be experienced in really high fidelity, immersive 3D spatial video on this Vision Pro. And when you talk to anybody who's had the experience with Vision Pro, they're like, they practically moved to tears. It's like this experience 
that we've, some of us are familiar with from Black Mirror, right? Where you can just, it's like replaying and really being in that physical context of the experience that you recorded. So Apple used an example of a dad recording the birthday party of their kid and getting that spatially and being able to experience it again spatially. So all of that, I would distill down to a big part of the near future of augmented reality, especially using Apple Vision Pro is going to be, we're moving into an era of not just being able to, people casually talk about reliving an experience through photographs and then through video and then, but spatial video, I think is, is going to get us very close over the coming years to, I feel like I'm there again, like I'm reliving that experience. I did want to ask you a nerdy question because you've mentioned, you mentioned a lot of things just now, which were super cool. You mentioned the idea that certain spatial computing devices, like a car, use spatial computing without ever giving humans a delightful visual experience of it. They don't need to. They just know need to know what not to bump into. The AR examples you've given, you talked about using a phone to look through its the camera, and the camera is co-located with a screen that can be overlaid one on the other. So that's a very useful thing. Fancy goggles like the Vision Pro or the now defunct, finally, Google Glass or the the Meta Ray-Ban or the Snapchat Spectacles, whatever they are, they may have a screen in them and a camera in them, and they're all located where our eyes are. Those are glasses and phones. For our listeners, are there any other ways that a human can experience augmented reality other than glasses and phones? That's a great question. I think if you're willing to use the term AR, augmented reality, a little bit loosely, this is something I've wondered quite a bit about. I think we could talk about projection mapping or some kind of evolved projection mapping as a, a kind of layering of digital content into a physical environment. There are people who have worked in a space might have might be familiar with Pepper's Ghost, right? Which is a an old <laughs> standby in terms of creating holographic images that can be part of multi-person shared experiences in a physical space, right? And so th- that's that is, that's done. an example where the way that works, I'm working on a piece about that right now, but the way that works does actually overlay an image through a hidden angled piece of semi-reflective glass onto something beyond. So it's, again, the key word there is layering, that if we extend augmented reality's definition to include the layering of digital information directly onto the physical environment, that's projection mapping, and in the case of a Pepper's Ghost, that's really funny that you had mentioned that because I've just been working on that. The idea of a Pepper's Ghost, that's not layering the, the digital content onto the glass that's attached to your face or the glass in your iPhone that's attached to your hand. It's layering it onto a piece of glass between you and the object that everyone can see. That is fascinating. The idea that a Pepper's Ghost which is essentially one of the four classic Victorian parlor tricks, along with shadow play, peephole illusion, and one I'm forgetting. I don't, don't remember what it is, but there are four, four, maybe five of them. That was augmented reality. goes back to the uh, difference engine. These things have been around since much longer than we think. It's true, and people have been, but you might just say sleight of hand of any kind. You might connect, or I might... My mind is connecting sleight of hand with this as well, right? It's about shifting, creating optical illusions or fooling the human perceptual apparatus into experiencing or believing or thinking that something is there when it isn't, right? Magic so, lantern. That's the other one. I was completely forgetting. Magic lantern, the, the uh, predecessor, the grandmother to uh, film projectors and Kodak carousels and iPhones and everything else, the magic lantern, the good old flame with a lens and something gets in the way and projects it on a wall. Sorry, I interrupted you. Yeah, no, no. I'm trying to think what is the magic lantern, but thank you for describing it. Now I can see it. You just named two that are actually augmented reality. In both cases, the projection mapping and the Pepper's Ghost, 
Those are two Neither other means the, by yeah. which reality is augmented. Sure. They're not personalized. With and Pokemon that, Go, I wouldn't necessarily yes. see the same critter as somebody else, but when it's projected into the actual physical world, I do see the same thing as you at the same time, and it's communal. Yep. I was about to make that precise point, Jonathan, thank you, that and it's extremely relevant and not spoken about very much. The fact that all of the augmented reality, most of the augmented reality, almost all of it, that exists in the world, including what happens in your Apple Vision Pro, is single player, to use a gaming term, right? It's a, no one else is seeing what you are seeing where you're seeing it, right? It is, in that sense, it's by default personalized. The people implementing the experience and the technology and the software have to actually work at it to have it be a shared experience. And this is actually a one of the things that drew me to working with Alki Labs to help commercialize this spatial computing technology is their commitment to shared augmented reality to, and that the platform and the technology they're building is such that if you and I are in the same room and we point our phones in the same direction, we will see the same digital content that appears to be in our shared physical space. And this is not something that the other big tech companies are really that concerned with providing yet. And it's, I say it's highly relevant um, dimension of augmented reality, largely because, yeah, personalization, on the one hand, we care a lot about personalization. We value personalization if we're shopping or if we're watching movies or listening to music. Like we want stuff that we like and it doesn't matter so much what the other people around because we we're having this private experience. But if we're talking about our shared physical reality, this era that we're well into now, people have described as post-truth or defined by alternative facts, like your facts are your own, you have personalized facts. <laughs> if you have pers if our experience of, I'll put it this way, like for the entirety of hum human existence, as far as we know, when we commute and, and the vast majority of it, actually, when we communicate about things, we've communicated in the context of a shared physical environment <laughs> until very recently when cosmic time, or even in the 300,000 years that paleontologists tell us that hominids have been on the planet, right? Very recently, until very recently, communication really had to be between physically co-located people. Didn't even have writing or printing until that recently. Communication had this shared physical context. Oh, so, there's a bear over there, or here's where the good berries are, or let's go set up our tent here. There wasn't there wasn't this sort of disagreement about ground truth or physical reality. And we're entering an era now where by default, all of this digital content is being created in a personalized way. But I think bringing it back to your question about AR, there's, I think there's huge value in creating and pursuing technologies that could allow us to have shared digital like shared digital experiences look i'm using that term i'm biting i'm like gritting my teeth and saying digital <laughs> thank you for the, one word second, to know. feel the sacrifice yes but but to be in the same physical space and to see the same digital layers just like we see the same physical objects to have that shared converged experience i think would be highly valuable and there just isn't the level of investment remotely. The big tech companies are all working on personalized, augmented reality, personalized. At the same time, in the form of virtual reality that is multiplayer online games, for example, which billions and trillions of dollars are spent producing and consuming and hundreds of millions, billions of people do on a regular basis. That's quite normal that in that digital world, you and your fellow members of the alien slaughtering platoon can see each other physically in that shared reality. That shared reality is a digital construct of a small portion of which at any given time in a either a headset or a screen or something, and your buddy is 
there's your wingman, and they're right over there, and you can see them, and they can see you in the reverse direction. But that's in the digital construct. That's not in physical reality. And I think what you just brought up with both the idea of the Pepper's Ghost and also of the projection mapping is that those are actual forms of augmented reality that are communal. And so they offer a ground truth that everyone can look at the same time. It's true. Just if you and I are in the same mall, in the same museum, in the same store, same room, we're seeing different stuff on our phones, right? And um, I'll connect this with one huge trend of the past few years that has really died down in terms of the hype cycle now, which is metaverse, right? But what if the one of the key elements of this concept of the metaverse, even going back to its origin in the Neil Stevenson novel Snow Crash in 1992, is that it is, there's only one metaverse, it's a shared immersive space that, that everyone's in, right? As, as if you were describing a massive multiplayer immersive game, a simulation, but metaverse is like that, but not just for one game, for all the games, for all the things that we want to do digitally, right? And so there becomes a shared reality because there's just that one place. I want to make a suggestion. We we um, we had seven things to talk about. I think we should talk about six because number seven was going to be something about AI, but I'm going to suggest that we do that the next time you come on the show. I would like to wrap up, though, with uh, number six, the near future of virtual reality, and maybe because we've touched on that in various ways. How can you imagine, or what are you seeing in terms of people using VR in public experiences? Meaning, we just talked a lot about the pros and cons of personalized digital (laughs) experiences, but what about when virtual reality is used in public, used with other people? Have you seen any successes there? Because there are obviously certain limitations. Sure. And I think, I'm sure, Jonathan, you have seen some successes as well, as well as anybody else who's done work with museums over the last decade. We've seen works of art that are delivered through a VR headset to museum visitors in many museums, right? I'm huge uh, enthusiastic proponent of that, both from an experimental perspective and also just getting people familiar with it. I wouldn't exactly call this, I guess you could call it public use of virtual reality, VR, but it's not a, almost none of these are are shared public experiences, right? Because by definition, again, VR is about you're in an enclosed simulated environment experientially, right? It's you put on the headset and you're there and maybe there are other players or other simulated people or entities in that simulation, but you're not interacting with the people that are physically around you in that public space, right? I do think this is going to continue to be interesting. What's What hasn't happened over all the years that, that we're referring to here with VR and public spaces, what hasn't happened is VR hasn't become a must-have or a, f- a familiar kind of mode of engagement with digital experience for most people. Meta, 10 years now, almost. 10 years? Yeah. Like 10 years, I think, after buying Oculus technologies from Palmer Lucky, Palmer Lucky's Kickstarter project, has only managed to get eight figures of people buying their headsets using VR in the tens of millions. It's not even the hundreds of millions, much less multiple billions. Still, you don't find people using VR all the time. It hasn't really caught on. Where we see or where I see VR in public spaces going, I think there are, the thing that I like the most, I guess I would say, is that museums and cultural institutions and just any organizations curating visual or sensory experience for people and benefit from creating a parallel, immersive, virtual reality kind of version of that content, right? So even years ago, I remember... We were doing some work or MoMA when I was at Gensler around the digital versions of museum visit of a of an experience of their design products from their store. And there was this whole funnel of experiences of art that that people can have when they just first discover MoMA on the website 
all the way through to the other end of the sort of funnel, to use marketing speak, which is being a patron of the museum. But along the way, there are things that include not just physical visit to the museum, which of course is something they want people to do, but in a website, in a immersive browser-based 3D thing where you can navigate through the galleries in 3D and experience the artwork, something you can do in a VR headset. As people get more comfortable, and I think this is where Apple's Vision Pro is actually going to play a role, is that I think for many people that have felt reluctant to jump into putting something on their face, for many years we felt like, look, it's, it's if and when Apple creates something, then people will feel good about putting it on their face, right? And so now that the devices don't look at quite as bad on your face because they're coming from Apple, I think you'll see more VR, including in public spaces. Wow. Yeah. In other words, all it takes is for Apple to get people or somebody to get people over the hump of being willing to do this new thing. And then it takes off like wildfire. Also, we're doing this, we're recording <clears throat> over video conference and this is something that we would have probably not done five years ago. We would have wanted to get together physically and been in a recording studio, et cetera. And that thing that happened in between to everyone in the world suddenly made Zoom a thing. So yeah, so the near future of VR might depend on what happens in the next couple of weeks. That's a really interesting thing to think about. So I think I'd like to do a quick recap. This is our modified list for today. The near future of experience design with Neil Redding. Number one, what is near futurism? Number two, applying near futurism to experience design. Number three, are physical and digital converging? And no, I won't say that word again. Number four, what is spatial computing? Number five, the near future of augmented reality, AR. And number six, the near future of virtual reality, VR. And the more I think about it, the more I think that the one that was going to be the next one, the near future of generative AI, we're going to have to have either a, either a podcast or, I don't know, some kind of month-long retreats to get at that one. But how did I do with the rest? Does that sound good? I think you did great, Jonathan. Thanks for uh, keeping us on the rails there. I will, just as a little teaser for uh, a possible part two of this conversation, mention that there is a lot of convergence happening between AI and spatial computing, AR and immersive experience. And actually my talk coming up at South by Southwest in about six weeks is going to cover this. And for interested listeners, I also have a new newsletter that I'm calling the Near Futurist that I just launched on LinkedIn. So if you find me on LinkedIn, and we'll put this in the show notes, right? You can subscribe and get a lot more information about these kinds of topics, striving to publish that weekly. And so there there's more and to that come. is going to be a LinkedIn newsletter, not an email. It is a, it is a LinkedIn newsletter, yes. Got it. Got but, it. Also, let's get a few coordinates for people who are washing the dishes or walking the dog and would like to shoot you a line. Let's get email coordinates right here. Spell them out. Website, LinkedIn. Sure thing. I would recommend LinkedIn as a starting point. That's where the newsletter is. That's where I publish most of my content. I don't know if, if spelling out the URL makes the most sense. Just but I would your just name. Say my name, yeah. So it's Neil, N-E-I-L, Redding, R-E-D-D-I-N-G. And um, if you really want to jump and email me right away, you could also email me at connect at neilredding.com, same spelling as my name. And neilredding.com actually is a site that has a bunch of speaking video and some links to articles that, that I've published over the years. And there's actually more on LinkedIn right now. I've got a pending website overhaul that's coming. But but yeah, if you're interested in videos of talks that I've given in the past, I'm also a keynote speaker. We haven't talked about that, but that's something I'm really leaning into this year. As I mentioned, South by Southwest, I've got some other conferences coming up that I'm speaking at and talking about near futurism and how AI and spatial computing are really uh, setting us up to be much more active in terms of creating reality, like creating our shared reality um, and feeling a sense of empowerment about the future rather than it is what it is, you know, which I think there's a lot of resignation, a lot of even perhaps appropriate 
sadness and frustration with the way things are going for humanity on the planet. But I, I, my argument is that reality is, is more in our hands to create and co-create than it ever has been. And certainly AI and spatial computing are part of that, as well as just the connectivity between humans that, the, that these technologies help enable. I'm, a, I'm an optimist. That is such a good note to end on. I needed that. Okay, Neil Redding, I think we covered it. Thank you, dear listener, for your time. In exchange, I hope this episode gave you some news you can use. If you would like to get in touch with me or you have an idea for the show, go to makingthemuseum.com and hit contact. You can also find me on LinkedIn under Jonathan Alger, A-L-G-E-R, or at the website of my firm, C&G Partners. And by the way, this podcast does have an older sister, a one-minute newsletter, email under the same name, one quick insight each time for museum leaders, exhibition teams, and visitor experience pros. You can subscribe at makingthemuseum.com, big subscribe button in the menu at the top. Meanwhile, I'm Jonathan Alger, and I hope you'll join me next time for Making the Museum. Bye for now.